Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to this Sandbox Story, which is an interview with Dr. John Potter. I've been fortunate enough to know Dr. Potter for probably over 25 years, uh, dating back to his days working at TLC Laser Eye Centers when he assisted many of us in Wisconsin with educational programs that ultimately landed us at TLC Laser Center in my city of practice here in Madison. And before that, he was a leader that I admired for his work as editor of the professional publication at the time known as the Journal of the AOA. He's made a really interesting career pivot in the last couple of decades, and I have caught up with him and am happy that he's agreed to join me on Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the episode, John. Yeah, thanks for having me. I just hope what we talk about is helpful to your listeners. It sure will be, because uh, you've witnessed an incredible evolution of optometry. Let's go back to your early, early days. Um, tell us about this elementary school essay that you wrote. <laughs> So uh, most optometrists have a story about how they got interested in optometry by getting an eye exam or something like that, uh, but not me. I, uh, to the best of my ability, I always wanted to be an optometrist. I wrote a essay, like a one-page elementary school, fourth or fifth grade, one-page essay in pencil. Uh, <laughs> where you had the lowercase letters and uppercase letters, lines and stuff like that. And the title, you know, the assignment was, what do you want to do when you grow up? And mine was optometrist. That's the title of the little essay. And I actually spelled it correctly, which is, <laughs> yeah, and I have no, I didn't wear glass. I, I hadn't had an eye exam. I didn't, I never had an eye. Inf I mean, I don't, I have no idea. <laughs> and so maybe eighth grade or so. I failed one of those school nurse exams and I, I got a referral, you know, to a, a local doctor. His name was Lloyd Wedeking. And um, I can remember, I'll never forget this, the sundial where, you know, I hear click, click, click. And all of a sudden, all the lines are equally dark. And I thought, man, this is magic. I really want to do this. <laughs> and so I applied to optometry school and I went to uh, Indiana University. What I didn't realize was at the 50 year celebration of the beginning of the School of Optometry, they put up these five pictures on a, uh, like a poster <clears throat> in, in the school. And one of those pictures was Lloyd Wedeking, who was my optometrist. He was president of the Indiana Optometric Association at the time. I didn't even know that. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea at all. And I, um, I thought Indiana was a, a, a really great experience. And I realize now that, that it was another big change in the profession. And so what, it, what, what I think happened uh, there was optometry went from being a vision science-based profession to being an eye care profession. During, in, even in that four years, I had, I'll never forget, I, I was on the third floor of the School of Optometry and 
Uh, John Amos was a master's student. He later became dean of the UAB School of Optometry, but at that time he was a master's student. And there were a group of people standing around and he said something like this. He said, you know, the OD is, degree is sufficient on its own. That we as a profession, if we are a clinical profession, we don't need a master's degree or a PhD or any other degrees to justify who we are and what we do. Some variation of that. And I put it in the back of my brain, and but I, I always remembered it and it really became important that idea later on for me. But there were academic clinicians like Jess Eskridge and John Amos. And there were practical clinicians like Merle Pickle, who just retired, I think, last year. <laughs> and in the middle was this guy, Freddie Chang, who uh, was getting a PhD in pharmacology, but he was also a very practical clinician, so much so that I would ask him questions all the time. And, I ended up calling him coach. I said, <laughs> 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 you know, and over the years, and he and he helped me many, many, many times. But I, but also I, in that time period, um, and I didn't know this at the time, but Irv Borish got really involved in the school of optometry because he had clinical concerns. And so I, I will tell you an embarrassing story about me and Irv Borish, if it's okay. Sure. <laughs> and as long as your listeners don't humiliate or shame me. <laughs> well, first, give give everyone a sense of who who Dr. Borish. Oh, was. sorry. Yeah, has been uh, the session. Yeah, Irv Borish. Um, the Review of Optometry called him the optometrist of the century. There are lots of optometrists who consider him the father of optometry. He looked like Albert Einstein and talked like Albert Einstein. And he wrote a book, Clinical Refraction, which is like this thick. <laughs> right. and, and he was a real monumental figure. I have hundreds of stories about Irv Borish, but he, he was a clinic instructor. He, he actually put on a white coat and worked in our clinic. And my very first day, my very first patient was a, had, was a, a professor in Slavic languages who was doing a sabbatical at Indiana. He had never had an eye exam. And so he, it was hard to understand him. And I could, I was, I was really crappy at retinoscopy. I mean, I was really bad. And um, I was floundering and I didn't know what to do. I went out in the hallway and the only instructor there was Irv Borish. And I thought, oh man, I can't do this. <laughs> so I went back and I did like color vision tests and stereo flies and all kinds of stuff. And so, but eventually, you know, I ran out of stuff to do. So I went back out in the hallway and again, he was the only instructor there. So I just humbled myself and went to him and told him, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I was expecting like a punch in the face or something like that. And quite the contrary, he just took off. He just, he goes, let's go. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and here's this guy's a bunch of years older than me moving at the speed of light. And I'm just like floundering. And so he walks in the exam room and um, he does retinoscopy with spheres only no cylinders. And he took him 10 seconds, maybe 15. And he did this pure wet, like from the right eye to the left eye. And 
that, you know, takes the working distance out and he says to the, this guy, you know, do you see? You know, this is a standard earth boorish phrase. And the guy's like T-Z-V-E-C-L, T-E-R-A-D-N, O-H-P-N. I can't get the rest of the letters. And I thought I would throw up. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> and, and he looked at me with this great compassion. And he said, let me show you how to do this. So he said, get with motion everywhere. You know, right eye, neutralize the first meridian, set the cylinder axis there. Cylinder axes, both eyes are, you know, somewhat symmetrical. So, you know, go to the other eye, do the same thing, then take the amount of astigmatism out both sides because most of the time it's about the same. And then that's all you have to do. And I, I thought, you're kidding, <laughs> right? <laughs> and it was one page in that 1200 page book but it really was important to me because later on, it really helped me. And even now, you know, I mean, I haven't practiced for a long time. I could do retinoscopy like right now, if anybody still does that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, higher education in optometry was really interesting. And I, I wasn't a very good student. I don't mind telling you, I, I was definitely not at the top of my class. And in my sophomore year uh, at Indiana, I, I got really discouraged. I thought, man, you know, I've wanted to do this all my life and I physics seems impossible. And, you know, I, I'm really thinking maybe I'll, you know, be a school teacher or something, you know? <laughs> so I'm in the undergraduate library at Indiana and there was a guy sitting across from me uh, at another table. And I, I could tell he was, studying you know optometry books like he had I think maybe Adler's Physiology of the Eye and you know books like that yeah. so his name was uh it is Vaughn Sanders and so I went over to him and I, I thought I'm just going to take a little risk here and ask him about optometry school because at that time I didn't know any optometry students I mean he was the you know I just took a risk and he was gracious he spent maybe we probably talked a half an hour maybe maybe longer and you know i wouldn't be an optometrist without him and i thanked him like 150 times over the years he became president of the southern council of optometrists so one time i embarrassed him at a dinner <laughs> you know <laughs> and he uh and I knew I'd made a mistake, right? So I sort of, I tried to poo-poo it like it wasn't that big a deal, you know, something like that, right? Uh, uh, but it was, it was a really big deal. And now, you know, that I'm full-time in higher education in another field, um, I remember that. So when a student um, wants to talk about something, especially if it's something they don't understand or that their confidence isn't what they would hope that it would be, I always think of that. And I spend the extra time um, and pay attention and uh, try to be, you know, really thoughtful and respectful. I don't know if Vaughn still practices or not. He probably does, I bet. <laughs> you know, I think he practiced in or practices in Owensboro, Kentucky. But yeah, and then I just thought, you know, this is really cool. And I, you know, I became an optometrist, which was great. So much of your stories of that early part of your career from the one page paper to 
you know, Dr. Borsch's uh, guidance as a first patient. It's about mentorship. And I'm curious if you look back in your early family life, was it a parent or grandparent that sort of groomed your thoughts about continuous learning? There must be something there that you can look back on. Sure. So my father was a railroader. He was road foreman for engines, was, you know, and my mother was a politician. So I wouldn't consider the two of them motivators in a higher education other than their child going to college, you know, right? Mm -hmm. But the person who really uh, mattered to me was my senior and high school literature teacher. Her name was Gertrude Dant, and she could make reading magic. And I remember when I went to, when my mother passed away, I went, you know, of course, went home and you know, did the funeral preparations, all of that. And so I'm filling my gas tank and I walk inside the, you know, like wasn't a 7-Eleven, it's like gorilla or something like that. Anyway, it's on the corner of these two highways. And there's a guy I went to high school with there and he's working at the, you know, cash register. But I look down next to the cash register and he had one of those old Western cowboy dime novels, you know, a little skinny thing. I mean, she she made um, education come alive. So that's probably the person that mattered the, the most to me. That's really interesting. You, you speak so eloquently of your optometric um, mentors, but you told me the story about how the day of graduation, you literally flew to Washington, D.C. to start the Navy. <laughs> you had many memorable experiences there, sometimes for people not in optometry. Tell, tell us some of that experience. Yeah, so... It was a different time, like 19, I don't know, early 1970s. I can't even remember when I graduated now, right? But it's in the early 1970s. And so a friend of mine, uh, Steve Howard, we were both going in the Navy together and he had a car. <laughs> you know, what I mean? and so when we graduated, I had to leave. We 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 had to go to Washington, DC, and we did what they called knife and fork school which was basically two weeks of this is how the Navy works. This is, you know, how you wear the uniform. And I mean, I'll never forget, I I was in line. There's this crusty old chief petty officer and he's dispensing uniforms, right? And so everybody's getting a white uniform and I got a brown one. And I'm like, man, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be in the Army, you know, right? I'm going to be in the Navy. And he's like, son, you're going to be a Marine. I had no idea what he was talking about, but I was assigned to the Navy Regional Medical Center at Camp Pendleton uh, in California. And it was another change and a great experience for me. Optometry at that time went from being not a part of healthcare to being a part of healthcare especially in a hospital environment. And I mean, I remember my very first day, there was an ophthalmologist that worked in the clinic who really disliked optometrists and and was resentful that optometrists had grown into the profession that it was at that time. So he put a AO590 refractor or opter in my exam room plus cylinder. And he thought he was going to do this really bad thing, right? And make me really miserable. 
And I had like 25 patients that day. But remember, it didn't matter to me. Right. I, yeah. Right. I, I could do I could do Dr. Borish. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. You know, and later on in life, I asked him at the last optometry Super Bowl where he and I were judges together. I leaned over to him and I said, you know, do you remember this? You know, I mean, I told him this story. And he said, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it made me feel good to thank him. You know, but he didn't remember because he'd been teaching, you know, forever and ever and ever. And, and, you know, but anyway, so so they did that. And later on in the day, a corpsman came to me and told me the story. And I earned all the corpsman's respect that day because apparently he had done this before and people had really struggled. But I didn't. And I refused to. I, I thought, you know what? <clears throat> the OD degree is enough. And I'm here. And I'm going to do the best I can. A couple of weeks later, a, a woman brought her son to a clinic. And um, the, the son, he had Coates disease. And, you know, Coates disease is not a, that's not a particularly difficult diagnosis. I mean, it, it's pretty spectacular. And the differential diagnoses are, are somewhat limited. And so I'd written a little paper in optometry school about Coates disease. One of those assignments where you have to pick a topic and I picked Coates disease. So I went out in the hallway and I found the first ophthalmologist I could find. And he was a Navy captain. He passed away, I think a couple of years ago. I really wanted to go to his funeral, but it was during the pandemic. Uh, his name was Doug Boyden. And so I just asked him, I said, would you like to, you know, see this young, this, you know, young man uh, who has Coates disease? And he looked at me like I was a Martian, right? Like how dare an optometrist, you know, think like that. And, uh, but he examined the boy and we became friends, like really good friends. He, every time he would, he was chief of ophthalmology at Balboa Navy Hospital. He came to Pendleton only to see patients. And after a while, he quit doing it. But at that time, he came like every other week or something like that. And he would always walk down the hall and say hi to me. And when Vietnamese refugees came to Camp Pendleton, he, he you know, worked in that clinic. And so did I. And, and, he, and later on, uh, he, he took me aside. I'll never forget this. We had lunch or coffee or something. And he said, you know what, John, you should teach. And I'm like, I don't want to teach. <laughs> you know, right? I'm burning out. I'm going to go ski. I had a, uh, I rented an apartment at Mammoth Mountain, and I had a job. And I'm like, man, I'm not doing this. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just toast. I don't, I don't want to do this. You know, I thing right now. I want to, you know, do something different. And then, a week or two after that, I got a phone call from Freddie Chang of all people who was at UAB in Birmingham. And he said, you know, we need an optometrist who's a veteran. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know? I'm going skiing. <laughs> exactly, right? Like I'm going skiing, I'm not doing this, <laughs> you know? But I mean, I owed him. I mean, and he's like, well, would you come? And so I did. And I thought, man, this is awesome. I, I, I like the people. Uh, you know, and maybe I had this little, little tiny little part of me that thought, well, maybe Doug Boyden was right. Maybe I should do that. Right. You, you so were part. 
I'm sorry, you were part of an important transition in optometric education and practice acts when you were there in the 70s, because it was about diagnostics. I mean, I can also talk later about each of the decades following, right, with therapeutics and lasers, so, so we will. But tell us about that, because I, I think there's some interesting stories you have there about just that first foray. You saw in the military what it was like to, to do many things, but then in practice, it was different. So tell us about that experience at UAB. Yeah, you know, like when I was in the Navy, like I'd been there like a couple of weeks and there's this Marine came into our clinic and had a corner of foreign body. And I was the only person, I was the only doctor of any kind there. And so I didn't want to remove the corneal foreign body because I thought, well, it required a diagnosis and it required treatment and the treatment was a procedure and I'm an, I'm an optometrist, right? So the corpsman who screened the patient went across the hall and got this ear, nose and throat doctor to come, uh, you know, do this. Um, but he... <laughs> He had a substance abuse problem. He was an alcoholic and he had a tremor and he didn't know anything about eyes at all. And he tried to remove the corneal foreign body and it was a mess. And so he just got up and left and left me there, right? With this corpsman and the corpsman just removed the foreign body. Just, he did it like it was, you know, having ham and eggs for breakfast. <laughs> And I'm like, How, what? How'd you, how'd, how'd you do that? And he goes, I'll show you. And I thought, oh my gosh, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, I can do that, right? And even like when I would go down to the emergency department, like sometimes, you know, I'd get a call or a, a family physician, you know, I, I knew a lot of those people or a nurse, they would, you know, ask me if I would come look at something. And I, I would do that. I didn't mind, it wasn't that far away. But what I realized was they didn't have any instruments that you and I would use. They didn't have a slit lamp. And lots of the physicians at that time, they would do ophthalmoscopy, direct ophthalmoscopy, like a foot away. I mean, it was crazy stuff. This is still true today. Oh, it is? Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. Well, okay, some things never change. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. You know, and so, I, so I'm formulating this idea of... of um, healthcare. So at UAB, there was a period of time where optometrists weren't engaged in healthcare. And the dean of the school, his name was uh, Henry Peters. The building's named after him. He um, he was the recipient of the first Distinguished Service Award uh, that optometry, the American Optometric Association, uh, gave. And he was a big guy. He was real tall and he was very powerful. I mean, he was socially dominating. He was a, a real leader with all the good and bad that comes with that. <laughs> yeah. But at the time, um, because this optometry school was in the middle of the UAB Medical Center, which is a another story, but I, I would just like to tell this story about Henry Peters because he mattered so much to me. There was a, a newsletter. It was a newspaper called The Pen, the Physicians Education Network. And basically it was yellow journalism. And it was all 
directed at Henry Peters. Not all of it, but so much of it that he was a constant theme. And most of the writers of the articles were practicing ophthalmology within 15 minutes of the School of Optometry. I knew them and I had seen their patients in the VA Medical Center. I mean, I, I knew those people, but they hated him. And uh, they would say terrible things about him. And I always thought he was this big, powerful guy who would be unaffected by anything. But Bob Newcomb, who was the chief of service, and I, we were meeting with him one day. And um, on his desk, he had the most recent issue of the, the pen. And uh, he was uncomfortable. And he asked a question somehow or other, uh, Bob would probably remember this better than me, but he asked a question, something about diagnoses, diagnosis. And most optometrists, I don't think today realize how big a deal the ability of a licensed independent professional to independently make a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan for a patient. At that time, that was a very big deal. And so he, he made some comment about that and Bob made some comment about that. And I made the mistake of saying, look, you know, we, we make diagnoses all the time. You know, we treat patients, we refer patients, we do all kinds of things, but we do it all the time. And we have copies of the medical records in our clinic, which Bob Newcomb, who had a master's in public health, thought was a really good idea for teaching purposes. Little did I know that this was going to light a fire. And he, he lost it. He was like, you know, give me the records, you know, and you know, da, da, da. And, you know, he and Bob had this public health conversation, but he always liked me more than Bob for some reason. <laughs> so, so Bob left. He he was he was just pummeled, right? He and Henry Peters was very powerful. I mean, he he could really make people uncomfortable, and um, Bob left. And so, you know, Henry Peters and I were looking at each other, and uh, it's time to go. It's the end of the day, and. We're walking down the hallway from the dean's office to the elevators. It's maybe, I don't know, 50 feet. And there's a little cafeteria like break room on the right. He stops and he had this really um, defeated look on his face. And he looked at me and he said, are you sure? And I, I mean, I just felt this overwhelming compassion for this great man who People had attacked him and hurt him. And I knew he was a tough guy, but nobody can, you know, stand that kind of hate for long without it being, being affected. And so I told him, I said, yes. And so we, we got on the elevator. He got in his car and my car, we didn't say another word together. And then in 1980, we published two papers on diagnostic outcomes in a VA medical center. And I know this is going to be a big surprise, but you know, we did really well, right? I mean, it was just really fundamental healthcare stuff. But at the time, it was a very, very big deal. And, you know, now the building's named after him, right? He was a really great man and a really a powerful force in my life. 
like if I would see him at a meeting, he would come give me a lecture. You know, like you need to be doing this. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to go skiing. You know, right? John, that's just such a powerful story. I think that we think about the diagnostic pharmaceutical agent or DPA rights earned in state legislatures across the country in the 70s and 80s as about the ability to dilate a pupil. But being so fundamental as an independent professional that makes a healthcare diagnosis. Um, I think that's one of the most interesting stories I've ever heard on Sandbox Stories, this, oh. this fundamentalism of one of the founding people of the profession and how challenged even he was to think about optometry going there. Yeah, you know, he, most people, it, most optometrists didn't have the opportunity to have the experiences that Bob Newcomb, John Amos, me, people had in the military. So they thought, that the issue on diagnostic drugs was about the drugs. It was never about the drugs. It was always about the diagnosis, always, right? And so under the circumstances, I mean, I had great empathy uh, for him, uh, but when when he, like, I remember telling him this story. So uh, when I was in the Navy, we had a glaucoma clinic. And back in those days, you dispense glaucoma medicines in in the clinic. And so a corpsman would go to the pharmacy and bring this big wooden box, and it had like every green top bottle you could imagine. (laughs) Pilocarpine. (laughs) Back in the day, right? And uh, and they parked it right out front of my my exam room. And uh, the corpsman, I forgot his name now, but his nickname was Tall Person. He was like 6'6", six, six kind of guy. And he would dispense the, the medications. And this is how they got patients to comply with coming in for exams. They would dispense your medicine. So I don't know, one day I'm like, I, do you know how this works? And he goes, yeah, it's just a math problem. I'll never forget this. It's just a math problem. I'm like, what math problem? He goes, well, <laughs> and he says, okay, you do this and you do that and you do this and you do this and you don't use phosphorylene iodide because it really sucks. <laughs> but we have a few people who use it. And I thought, you're kidding me. I mean, the eye is a limited number of tissues. It responds to disease in a limited number of ways. So whether you're using a drug for diagnostic purposes or whether you're using it for therapeutic purposes, it all revolves around uh, the diagnosis. And um, I, I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to, to do that work with Bob Newcomb and with Henry Peters. Uh, it was a big adventure. It was fun. And to move forward a part of a decade, uh, you got into the 1980s, you got to Nashville. And that was an entire process of supporting that therapeutic agent rights that states like Tennessee were at the forefront of. Yeah. And you've given me a story that I need you to tell about, you know, Again, perspective on medications like steroids. Um, tell us some of those stories as, as optometry went toward, toward, toward treatment of those diseases they diagnosed. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I didn't know any better. <laughs> you know, I was just doing, I just thought I was just doing the next right thing. Whatever was in front of me, I was going to do and to, to do the best I could. That, that was just how I thought. And I, um, I had this great friend. Um, she was a PhD in pharmacology. She taught at uh, the Southern California College of Optometry. And, and I worked with her. I spent 
like five years uh, in Southern California with the Veterans Administration doing some joint commission work and some other kinds of things. And we were at some meeting or I was at some meeting and somebody went on this long dissertation about steroids and all the complications associated with topical steroids. And, I, and I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm like, you know, steroids are no big deal. I mean, that, that was what I said. And, and then I defended it. And I defended it in a rational way that I think any clinician in modern healthcare would have talked about medications. Optometrists always talked about the problems first, then the therapeutic benefit for second. And no one else in healthcare does that. They always talk about the benefit first. That's how it gets FDA approved, right, is the benefit. And then are there associated potential problems with medications? Sure. But a reasonably qualified clinician, you know, can 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 do that. I mean, I remember, I remember making a comment in the same meeting that most of the ophthalmic antibiotics prescribed in the United States are prescribed by people who are not optometrists or ophthalmologists and don't have a slit lamp and don't even, like you said earlier, do ophthalmoscopy from you know ten feet away. Still, yeah. And so uh, she she wanted to talk to me about it, and we became really good friends. Uh, I really thought she was like this really special person, and but yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's a big thing. So like when I went to Nashville, we started a, a co-management company, and it was just straight up public health. You know what? It wasn't. It wasn't like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, starting Facebook, right, Scott? It was just, you know, it was just a really good idea. And and but conceptually, it was it was it was new territory, big time. It was Star Wars. I mean, it was it was crazy. And but you know, I for me, uh, I always felt like that licensed independent professionals should practice at the highest level of their sophistication that it's not only beneficial to patients, but in terms of health economics, it's the best way to deliver healthcare. And so we started uh, this, this effort and I got to know some of the best optometrists and the best people uh, that I have ever worked with. Um, two people in particular, and if it's okay, I'll talk about people because I think, you yes. know, People first, program second. Uh, two people come to mind. The first one was an optometrist who I think either won the Distinguished Service Award or was optometrist of the year or something like that. His name was Virgil Rhodes. And he lived in Manchester, uh, Tennessee, right near where Jim Beam is made. <laughs> anyway, I think it's Jim Beam. Anyway, uh, but he was a master politician. And he and I, we hit it off immediately. I'd grown up with this stuff. I can remember being like in the second grade, my mother lifting me up to put those little door hangers to vote for this candidate, uh, you know, kind of stuff. But he was unbelievable. And he, he understood legislation. He understood how to get things done. He, I mean, when, when the therapeutic drug bill was passed, I was standing next to him and I, I, wanted to say something like, hey, great victory, congratulations, something like that. And he said, no, no, wait, wait. And so afterwards, I'm like, 
I don't understand. And he goes, I don't want to watch the lights on the board for the people who vote first. I want to watch the, the board for the people who vote second. I want to know who our friends are and who are the people who just voted. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I have a lot more to learn from him. So I learned a great, great deal from him. He's, I think he's no longer living, um, but he was a great man and deserved, you know, all the accolades that he could have gotten. Also had the opportunity to work with David Sullins, who was president of the American Optometric Association. Eventually he was a big leader in optometry and uh, he had one speed and that was fast. <laughs> he didn't, he, he uh, uh, we had this hearing and he, he said, you know, John, if, if we need to, we're gonna have you respond to a question. I'm like, I don't wanna respond to a question. I don't wanna go skiing. <laughs> I don't wanna do that. But I sat next to him and I could feel the heat. That's how much it mattered to him. And part of the therapeutic initiative was because David's father, who had been a practicing optometrist, was humiliated by uh, uh, some ophthalmologist uh, and David never forgot it. Never, ever, ever forgot it. I forgot his father's name now, it's been such a long time, uh, but David was a real powerhouse. So I really enjoyed being there. I, I would like to interject that uh, a few decades later, I had the good fortune of serving with David and the AOA's Infants Vision Project team, along with people like Dr. Bubba Steele and uh, Pete Kehoe, Dory Carlson, Lynn Hammonds. There was so many, I'd, I'd be resistant to, to try to remember them all. And David was brought in because of his work and the importance of children's vision that he had uh, pioneered in Tennessee. And David was very clear when he joined the committee that, um, as you said, there's heat coming off of him. We're going to have the Katie Couric interview when this thing is big. And we sort of wrote it down and everyone just, you know, rolled their eyes a little. Um, then I had the unfortunate experience of talking to David in June of something like 2004 as we were trying to get this initiative through the AOA's House of Delegates. And he had told me, hey, I don't have much time. I've been diagnosed with lung cancer, but I hope this thing goes out smashingly. And he allowed us to work with him to record a video oh. that we ended up playing at the House of Delegates in 2004. Oh. Um, his voice resonated through the microphone, the speakers. Um, and uh, he unfortunately lost that battle, but it was just um, 10 months later or so that we got ourselves landed on the Today Show. Wow. What and yeah. I was fortunate to be the spokesperson that sat there with Matt Lauer, oh, cool. uh, with former President Carter, yeah. um, beamed in by satellite and uh, talked to Katie Couric in the back hall, gave her an infancy bracelet and sort of kept David's motivations alive. And uh, mm -hmm. it's just a nice point of mutual personal privilege yeah. to reflect on his uh, impact on the profession. Yeah, I should interview you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. And these people, you know, it's not like they they served, you know, their community one day. They served forever and, and all the time. And, you know, I think if we're going to talk about change, you know, we need to talk about the people. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I thought the optometrists that I worked with in Nashville, I thought they were the best people I had ever worked with. And I still keep up with a bunch of them. 
Uh, but I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. You know, it was very natural for those of you who dealt with diagnostics and therapeutics to be on the cutting edge of advanced procedures. And while I won't uh, be able to mention all the people in Wisconsin that did like your friends in Tennessee did, mm-hmm. my old partner in practice, Dr. Vic Connors, oh, yeah. who's no longer with us, was at the forefront of all of that, like yep. you were, like Dr. Rhodes was. And uh, it was no surprise then as the 90s came along that he was strongly encouraging his colleagues and me and his practice to get going with laser refractive surgery at the front edge. And you were, of course, in those early days, too. And one thing that I want to start this off with, I know you had a long career in there and you can tell us about it, was this concept of best uncorrected distance visual acuity that really landed with me. But I think it's a topic that you need to explain to the audience. Okay. So um, back when I was in the Navy, <laughs> right, there was an ophthalmologist. He wrote a paper in 1971 because I actually looked it up this morning. And the idea was that you should only prescribe in half diopter increments. That prescribing in quarter diopters was a waste of time. And, you know, on a foropter, there's an eighth of a diopter, which I never prescribed, right? But regardless, you get the idea. He And, and he also later on from the podium talked about prescribing spherical equivalents. And so the chief of my clinic, who was a, a Navy captain, full bird colonel, as it were, in other uh, branches of the military, bought into that. And uh, he... You know, he was much older and he'd been trained like by Thomas Edison or something. I mean, you know, he was like in his last couple of years in the Navy. And I would see these patients, Scott, and I would look and they would say something like, well, it's been two years since I had an eye exam and I don't think my vision's quite the same. And I would go back and look at the previous notes because I had the whole medical record. And I would see where he took out their diopter and a quarter of astigmatism and prescribed the spherical equivalent. And I thought, I don't, I just don't understand this. And I would put, you know, the appropriate refractive error, you know, corrected and the patients would go, well, that's better. And I thought, like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> like, I just, you know, this is another reason why I wanted to go skiing, right? I just don't understand. But then over time, um, I began to realize, like I had an ophthalmologist that worked across the hall from me, Bob Halder, he and I were, you know, we were really good friends. And I, I enjoy, I really miss him. I mean, he was so much fun to work with. He had a great sense of humor and he was a good clinician and lots of fun. And a couple of times I would ask him about it and he'd just blow it off and say, well, you know, he's a captain, you're not, you know, stuff like <laughs> that. Then I started to realize, you know what, people, we in practice, we think of uncorrected distance visual acuity and corrected distance visual acuity. But we don't really think about how a patient understands best uncorrected distance visual acuity. So whether they're wearing glasses, contact lenses, or haven't ever had an eye exam, there's a certain tolerance for refractive error. Um, and that, that was a really big deal to me. So when, must have been 1994 or so, I think, <laughs> um, I spoke at the Heart of America meeting, Heart of America 
cornea and contact lens meeting, I think it was called. It was in Kansas City. I don't know if it's still, you know, there. I think it still goes. Yeah, I think it's Does it? It was an awesome meeting. I mean, it was smaller than the Southern Council, so you could talk to more people. And I, I, I just thought it was so much fun to be there. So they used to provide a limousine service. And you would go from the hotel, which was downtown, to the airport, which was actually pretty far away. So it was a really nice service. So I'm in the front of the hotel. And there's this guy standing next to me and, you know, I said hi and he said hi and we introduced ourselves. His name was Jeff Mishat. Uh, he was the founder of TLC Laser Eye Centers and he told me what he was doing. And I thought, man, that's really interesting because I had in my mind this idea that radial keratotomy, the problem with that was the people who wanted to have radial keratotomy, the high refractive error patients shouldn't have had it. The people who could benefit it were the low refractive patients and they didn't want to have it. So it was, you know, it was this weird thing, but I thought the laser, you know, all you gotta do is get pretty close. You don't have to be perfect because at the time there was a lot of conversation about it was, you know, imperfect and so on and so forth. And then maybe, I don't know, the FDA approved the laser and I did an interview with the Wall Street Journal on FDA approval and the report and I, we talked for an hour and he took one quote, right? <laughs> of course. Right, exactly, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like, you know, it's like being interviewed by Katie Couric, except uh, you don't get to talk as much, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Anyway, so, um, you know, and I told him, he said something, he had this weird way of asking the question, he said, you know, are optometrists interested in, and I said, it's, it's our responsibility to be interested in it. That's the quote that, that ended up in there. And it was because I thought, you know, this is really vision science. It's the laser is just the laser. You know, how the patient responds to treatment is the real issue. And so like shortly after that, that, you know, TLC Laser Eye Center started in the United States. And um, I got a call from somebody and I don't know if it was Jeff. I don't know who it was. And I was available. And I thought, you know, this is a big adventure and I'd like to go on it. And so I started with um, Ed Holland, an optometrist in North Carolina who had passed away several years ago, but he, he knew everybody. And he was gregarious and outgoing and very social. Mark Smith, who was a business guy, but his father, Willard Smith, had been really instrumental in the formation of the School of Optometry. He was an optometrist in Alabama. And then Dwayne Morrison, who was a, a man that was a really good friend of our chief executive officer. And I would have done what our CEO did. I would have a friend of mine in this group, right? You know, make yeah, right. sure other people don't do anything crazy, right? <laughs> and that's how we started. And we, we had, um, well, it just took off. And, you know, I, I remember we were in this office in Toronto. And again, you know, for me, I mean, I stumbled onto stuff. I never had a plan. I still don't have a plan <laughs> other than going skiing, you know, right? You know, right? It was that kind of thing. I'm looking at this whiteboard and I'm doing the math in my head. And I'm thinking, you know, there's no way you can grow an outpatient surgery facility business 
and do all this post-operative care. Not only that, it's a discrete intervention, so you don't know the patient very well, so you're gonna produce outcomes that are less than desirable. So why wouldn't we have optometrists provide the primary care, make the full referral decision that makes our job easier, and then the patient goes back to their doctor in their community, which is, you know, either they don't have to drive as much and so on and so forth. And they get to be with somebody who has the time and is interested in their vision. Absolutely. hundred percent, Scott. And so, and I sketched it out. I did like a little mini Excel spreadsheet. Like you couldn't possibly provide the amount of surgery that we could have done without making it so that people were working together. And there were optometrists who earned you know, significant amounts of money in professional fees and, and got developed and enhanced their relationships with their own patients during that period of time. I was really proud uh, to be a part of that. If you think about this, there's only two ways to, to, to make this work. One, you either don't provide the pre and post-operative care, which a lot of refractive surgery companies have tried to do, and they've all fallen by the wayside. I mean, it's just basic fundamental, right? Or you either have to charge a lot more or charge a lot less. They have to, there's some like math problem on how much the patient pays for surgery. There's only two ways that you can do it. So even now, I mean, that's, that's, those are just fundamental public health principles. Uh, that I learned from Bob Newcomb and Henry Peters and Doug Boyden and all kinds of people, Freddie Chang, you know, 20 years before. So I really enjoyed being a part of that. It was a lot. Well, let me, if I can interject another personal story that I don't yeah, think please. most optometrists today understand, this is where we got to know each other. Mm. And that through Vic Connors, myself, another a bunch of Wisconsin optometrists, met with Dennis Kennedy, who was very connected to oh, all yeah. of you from TLC. A Michigan doctor, and was supporting the new facility TLC had built in Windsor, Ontario. And Canadian laser surgery was going strong. Yeah. And the, there really wasn't an access around us. Although here in Wisconsin, we had a university-based offering, for example, with a, a, an eczema laser. Yeah. And we got so educated and committed to this idea of co-management, good preparation of the patient, good mindfulness of the patient going, and, and good post-surgical care and complete embracing of Dr. Mashad as a surgeon, mm -hmm. that we would load patients on airplanes in Madison, Wisconsin. Yep. The plane ticket would be a discount off of their surgical fee. They would fly to Detroit with a family member, get picked up in a van mm -hmm. at the airport, taken across the bridge through customs, surgically operated on, and sent back. Mm -hmm. It got to the point, John, where uh, there was one day I was just seeing patients forgetting that a patient had flown to Windsor for surgery. And in the spirit of this co-management process, uh, Dr. Mashat was on the line. I thought, Jeff Mashat's calling me. What's wrong? And he said, listen, I've got one of your patients here. Um, you know, we're, we're more and more looking at corneal thickness as an important part of this. I need to do PRK instead of LASIK. Um, that kind of relationship building yeah. was something we had done with cataract surgery in Madison, Wisconsin, with some of our surgeons for a bit in the 90s. But it was transformative. And it was such a pleasure to get to see the results of your work with our patients at that time. And I want you to take a little bit of, uh, of appreciation and, and gratitude from us that, that did all of that and have grown at so much. Because all those people you worked with and all that work you did 
resulted in an incredible service that even in the year 2022 today is actively uh, participatory between optometry and ophthalmology. And it's, it's a wonderful thing you did. You made my day. So we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, yeah, you know, so one of the one of the really important things that Jeff Machette, who I still, we, he and I are still friends. We talk probably every month. And he, you know, he's really a great friend. But we had this conversation early on about respect, right? That that you know, I I had a great deal of respect for what he could do, and he figured it didn't take him very long. He figured out, oh, I get it. So I need to have the same level of respect for you. And he, he and he had been sort of uh, tutored by Dennis Kennedy who lived in Detroit and went there every weekend. Gosh, I went to Windsor so many times, Scott. I, I would go across the Ambassador Bridge and the, the person at the booth would say, hi, John. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I would go to Tim Hortons and then go to the clinic. I mean, so much. But I really enjoy, I just thought, you know what? <clears throat> Optometrists could and should work together and it should be mutually respectful. It should be beneficial for both professions and I was really grateful to be a part of that. And I did that. So we, we had, you know, it grew really fast. Like you said, you know, like your practice and so on and so forth. And I forgotten about all the other people. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> well, there's one, there's one more brief story I'll tell. Yeah, and then I want please. to talk a little bit about the outcomes issues that you dealt yeah. with, right. In terms of, of outcomes from thousands yeah. of patients. But I got a call one day at my practice. Another patient had gone uh, over to Windsor. And I was told that Dr. Machat's self-selected right-hand doctor, Dr. Lou Probst, would do the procedure. Is that okay? And it was a bit of a shift for me, right? And it was yeah. this infinite level of trust that I said, well, if Dr. Machat says Dr. Probst can do it, we will. And for anybody who's listening, please go watch last year's podcast that I did with Dr. Probst, who's still a deep friend of ours and still operates at the TLC Center in Madison. Yeah. Um, talk about a system that they built in terms of uh, this trusting and very strong uh, science-based, outcome-based relationship with the doctors that referred patients there. It was a true working relationship that that worked. Yeah, I don't keep up with him as much as I used to. I'm not with the company anymore. I retired from the company last year, and I have a pretty robust non-compete, non you know, confidentiality, non-disclosure agreement, which is good for a few more months. So I don't, I don't talk to too many people because I shouldn't do that. But yeah, he, um, he really, he got it. Like he, it, it didn't, you know, it's just like everybody, you, you, you learn something new and you either go, yeah, this is really cool. I want to do it. Or, I think this is really stupid. I don't want to do it. But he thought it was really cool. And he liked the people. And yeah, no, he was great. And, and and a lot of other people, but yeah, he was in, I guess he's still in Madison at TLC, I, I guess. He is amongst the places he goes. He lives in Ann Arbor and and um, somebody who has built an, an incredible extension of what Dr. Mashat first built. Now, with all these patients that are taken care of, over time, there are patients that have unmet expectations. And so you became more involved in your time with the company in unmet expectations and managing those. And, and it led to a radio ad later that changed things. Tell us the trajectory of that. Yeah. So year 2000, 
we, you know, the companies that couldn't put the patient first fell by the wayside. The people that didn't understand what we've just talked about, they, they could not make this work and they fell away. So we acquired them and, or we didn't acquire them or we merged with them. We did all kinds of business things, right? But by the year 2000, we, we had a significant medical malpractice burden. Two reasons. One, it was new technology, new procedure. Not everybody knew everything. Things had to go wrong to get them right. Uh, but in addition, we acquired companies that had patient problems. And so um, at the time we were in St. Louis, Missouri, the company we got acquired by, I forgot the name, Laser Vision Centers of America, something like that. Anyway, whoever that was, right? Isn't it terrible? I don't remember. <laughs> but anyway, so um, the lawyer, his name was Bob May, who ended up being an awesome friend. He um, went to the board and said, we got to do something because we can't get medical malpractice coverage, secondary coverage. We could get, oh, I'm sorry, we couldn't get primary coverage, but we could get secondary coverage. And uh, that's a really big deal. And so the company that eventually, you know, provided that for, for the enterprise um, demanded that they have a, what they called a patient advocacy program, what we would call a risk management program today. Um, and so Bob said, okay, who are we going to get to do this? Because I'm a lawyer. <laughs> and I was in this meeting and I looked around the room. I was the only optometrist or ophthalmologist in the room. And all these eyes, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> you know? But Bob said, you know what, John, I'll help you. If you're willing to, to give this a try, I'll help you. And I thought, you know what? I can take care of my own patients. I should be able to take care of other people's patients. That's what I thought, which was a really stupid idea. I mean, it, it was really dumb. And Bob, who was a lawyer, <clears throat> understood enough clinical stuff to know we had a problem. And I didn't know much about the law, but he, he helped me. And we went to Minneapolis and we visited Toro the lawnmower company, and they had this unbelievable dispute resolution program. And I thought, okay, I, you know, I get it. And I even wrote an article about this for a, a really well-known publication in Australia uh, that my mediation teacher later on asked me to write. Um, but we went, we went for a year, Scott, with just utter failure. I mean, I, I didn't get it and, and he couldn't explain it and so on and so forth. I mean, over time, like I worked with great lawyers like Brian Andrew, who had been counsel for the American Optometric Association, Sharice Anderson, who's still with a company that's a spinoff of that. She was an awesome person. Uh, Kevin Deneen, who uh, was general counsel for LASIK Plus. I mean, I worked with, you know, a lot of really, really great uh, lawyers who, had some compassion on someone who wasn't a lawyer. But after the first year, I'll never forget this. We had this unbelievably difficult patient problem where the patient had contemplated uh, suicide and he had made all kinds of threats and so on and so forth. And I had read this book uh, 
taking the war out of your words. It was a lame, I mean, just, I picked it up at like a bookstore, right? Anyway, so Bob was really upset and I was really upset. And, you know, I talked to this guy and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to try this out. And it worked. And so I floundered around for another couple of years. I'm driving down the tollway in Dallas and I hear this radio ad, come be a professional peacemaker. And it was this master's degree in dispute resolution and conflict management at Southern Methodist University. And I thought, man, I'm going. They have an information session. I went the next day to the information session and I enrolled in the program the day after. <laughs> and it wow. made all the difference in the world for me, Scott. It made it so there was a, a context for understanding how to help people. Uh, and so we came up with a, a mantra really straightforward. I published it in, the, in another paper. First, first and foremost, help the patient. It, the, the reason we used doctors to do this was because of the doctor-patient relationship. So first help the patient. If you can't do that, support the doctor, support the surgeon, right? Support the person who, who did the procedure and has to live with the consequences uh, that follow, right? And then finally, if you have to, you, you defend the enterprise, you know, if you have to do that. I mean, that's, that's a fiduciary obligation. And uh, we, I mean, I have to be really careful how I say, that, say this, but we just didn't get sued. So I don't think I'm violating my, my uh, you know, non-compete and all non-disclosure. We just didn't get sued because we helped the patient. And I worked with unbelievable people. Bill Tulo, who, who I'm sure you know, uh, Jim Owen, Sandy Carmen in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Clark Chang in Philadelphia, and Stacy Lerm, who lives in North Carolina, and we we and we we worked really well together, and we had this uh, way of thinking: uh, best idea wins. So we would be on a conference call, and I would talk about a patient, or Sandy would talk about a patient. Bill, somebody would talk about a patient, and, and I'd say, "What do you think?" And somebody would say, "John, that's a really stupid idea." <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I said, "What's a better one?" You know, "What's a better one?" And so somebody would make a comment or think of something, and we would try it out because, again, it was all brand new stuff. I mean, what we were doing was way out on the fringe of reality. I mean, it was all new stuff and i mean i mean i really the one thing i really missed uh in the past couple of years is is that people that i just talked about they they were incredible uh to work with and the lawyer that we worked with was really awesome and i really really enjoyed that so anyway i'm in the master's program uh at the university and maybe it's i don't know my next to last course, something like that. And um, the person who taught research methods, she got sick. She got really sick. And it's the middle of the term. Director of the program's trying to find somebody who could teach research. And I'm like, I can do it. And he goes, no, you can't. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. <laughs> and so he said, send me your resume. And that changed uh, my trajectory in my, my career. Yeah. You became and have gone through being a, a, an educator at SMU. So 
you never were going to be an educator. Tell us about being an educator. So I, you know, he, he got really, you know, agitated, you know, like he's like, send me your resume. We've got to have somebody right now. And I did. And, you know, I don't, I want to be really, I don't want to blow my own trumpet here, but I'm qualified. I mean, I I've got 70 plus peer reviewed publications. I've edited two index medicus journals. I've written chapters and books. I wrote a book with some friends of mine. I've served on institutional review boards when I was in the veterans of May. I'm qualified. And, sure. and he's like, why didn't you tell me this earlier? I'm like, I didn't know you wanted here. <laughs> but when I taught the course, I thought, okay, I'm going to teach this from a dispute resolution point of view. I'm not going to, I'm not going to teach it from a research point of view. And so I did that and I got really, really high marks because I've been doing continuing education and teaching in higher education and postgraduate education for 50 years. I mean, I was was like, okay, like good enough, right? So anyway, I got good evaluations and the next spring, a full-time appointment opened up. I thought, you know what? I, I love this career change. I'm not afraid to try to do something different. This is a, you know, it's my, my Zoom background here. That's Dallas Hall at SMU. It's a, it's a top 50 school. I mean, it's a big time research program. And I thought, man, I, you know what? I'm gonna do this. And so I've been there since 2008. I'm up for clinical professor, full, you know, full professor this year. It's a really big deal. And, uh, you know, the same idea. I just thought, just like John Amos said in the early 1970s, the OD degree is enough. So I work with people who, you know, have PhDs in literature and religious studies and the Lyle School of Engineering and, uh, you know, all different kinds of people. And I have a great deal of respect for them and they do for me. And I've really enjoyed it. It's, uh, I really love doing it. I never planned on it. Uh, but I think if, if you're an optometrist and your your mind is open and your heart's open to opportunities, there are a lot of really great things that we can do. Um, and I've really, I, I, I mean, I, I don't mind telling you, I don't miss practicing optometry and I don't, I don't miss working in refractive surgery. I have a new life and I really enjoy it. This term as an example, it's one of the, one of the professors couldn't teach a neuroscience course. And I thought I could do that. I mean, of all the courses in dispute resolution, the one I ought to be able to teach is that one. Yeah, and we did it and we had a great course. I mean, I really, um, I learned how to teach grownups. You know, I learned how to teach people who practiced and did did life. And it all started, you know, with people like Freddie Chang and Doug Boyden and so on and so forth. And, you know, Vaughn Sanders. And I mean, it go on and on and on. And I just think, you know, like now, if a student wants to talk to me, I will talk to them as long as I can, because I just think one of them is going to, you know, do something great. So it's been your I'll bet. Uh, do your students in these conflict and, and resolution courses know that you're an optometrist? Uh, this For is the most really, part, I guess they don't. Yeah, so this is a really weird higher education thing. Sort of like mediation. If I do a mediation, and I've done a, a lot of mediation in healthcare, I mean, I with 
with in refractive surgery, I took care of thousands of patients. Yeah, and it's a tremendous seven day a week job, lots and lots of work. And now I do work with other different kinds of groups. I've never had anybody ask me, you know, um, how many mediations have you done or you know, anything like that. I've never had anybody say, you know, an optometrist, how'd you get in this field? I mean, maybe once a year, but most people, they just, uh, they just figure, okay, you're a college professor, so you must be okay. And, you know, nobody, nobody asks. I mean, it's just been, and I don't mind that. Like, I don't tell people, like every now and then some, you know, body will get a little testy and they'll say something like, well, you know, you don't have the right degree or right doctorate or something like that. And the OD degree is enough, John. Yeah, absolutely. So my response is immediate. I said that I always say the difference between you and me is I can prescribe medications for patients and you can't. So I can read books, but you can't prescribe. You know, I'm, they get upset and I'm like, I'm a conflict professor. You're kidding me. You want to fight? <laughs> yeah. So I really, really had a great career and I've really enjoyed it. Optometry's meant so much to me, but I think at the end of the day, all these changes that we've talked about, you know, like the conversations that you've talked with me about, about the same thing, the people, right? I mean, we've done some really great things in the profession, but it's always been with really great people. I just have a couple other things. They should be short. Uh, part of the reason we got back together nearly 30 years after probably last working together was that I remembered a 1994 editorial that you did over a course of six months in the Journal of the AOA, yeah. where like with your conflict resolution work, you didn't tell people when you went and had an eye exam that you were an OD. You said to those of us who are reading, I just want to know how it is to be on the other side. And you've, as I've told you, sort of always stuck with me in those words. I really read them importantly. Every month you got that crisp new journal. I'd read an edition uh, of your six by one um, editorials. And and I'm contemplating with your encouragement to do the same. In fact, I've started it a bit. Yeah. And I, I thank you for that. And I think it's an important point for optometrists to think about how the world looks at them without necessarily boasting or yeah. saying anything about how intelligent we are, how trained we are. That's a real lesson I've learned from you. So I'm grateful that you said that. I, I came up with that idea just at the spur of the moment. And I mean, like if you're in the waiting room in some doctor's office and there's a dead fish in the aquarium, I mean, that's a deal killer, you know, right? <laughs> but I mean, I really, and I, when I changed my eyeglass prescription to make the conversation about the change problematic for the clinician, for the optometrist. And uh, that was fun. And I enjoyed writing about it. But on top of that, I learned a really powerful lesson. So when I did uh, dispute resolution and conflict management in refractive surgery, if I had to go see a patient, which I had to do sometimes, not all the time, but enough. And if I had to go see a patient, it was a really big deal, right? And, and so what I would do is I would say to the center manager, let me know when the patient's here. And that person would say, okay, and, and they would come tell me. And I would go out and meet the patient in the waiting room. So I felt like what they needed to know was I wasn't here because they were gonna come see a doctor. 
I was here because I was going to help them. And of all the times that I did that, almost, I mean, I can't think of a time when, when I did that, that we didn't make a lot of progress uh, with the patient. Most optometrists, most people in healthcare just don't think about the parking lot. They don't think about the waiting room. They don't think about those torn copies of Sports Illustrated. You know, it, but that kind of thing, it matters and it matters a whole lot. And so I really enjoyed that. I'm grateful that you said that. Um, yeah, I, I had fun doing that. We even did, you know, I, you had asked me about this once before about, we did this thing with primary care optometry news in 1994, I forgot. Yeah, I think it was an article I had found that you had been a panel overseer or moderator for a bunch of big names in optometry. Huh. And you had to recollect it and maybe don't still recollect it. I don't. <laughs> for, I, I find myself to be, and I think most optometrists should be, good historians and, yeah. and those who recollect what happened in the profession. And, and you reflected on it and said, wow, that, that was actually pretty good, despite yeah, being part of it. I not really remember. <laughs> I've forgotten. I think it was the first time we talked, you said, hey, you know, do you remember this? And I'm like, no. And, and you probably thought, okay, he's seen our alien, right? But I don't remember doing it. Uh, I, it probably wasn't an AOA Congress. But there were a lot of great people uh, in that interview. Irv Borish, David Sullins, Wid Blything. I mean, a whole lot of people. And um, I, don't, I don't remember doing it, but when, uh, I'm sure Mike DePaulis set that up and Nancy Hemphill, but I went back and read that and I thought, man, how prescient that was, that these people with all these different experiences, they all kind of had this direction that the profession was going to go in. And um, yeah, I really... I wish I remembered more about it. I, I really don't. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> well, I, ref I reflect on your not recalling every one of those steps to be precisely aligned with Dr. Borish, not quite remembering that he had taught you the retinoscopy method. Oh, thanks for saying that. <laughs> that experience, right? That, that yeah. you've been around a lot of people. You've done a lot of things. And that's why it's been so much fun to catch up. And I'd regret if we didn't finish by just pointing out, if it's not obvious, how wonderful of a human being you are. I mean, oh, well, you take care. You've been a runner. You're an incredibly proud father. Um, you've done some incredible benevolent activities in your community. And I guess I'd just like to give you a moment to reflect on those, mention anybody else. You're so good at remembering people and You've introduced my daughter to your daughter uh, who's pursuing a career like your daughter in counseling. Um, you, no one wants that kind of a light, but I, I would give you a chance to talk about those that are important to you. So I'll try to be succinct. When I was a practicing optometrist, I thought everything I did with people was about me, right? Because I'm the doctor. Then when I quit being the doctor and I realized that it isn't about me, <laughs> right? Uh, I thought, okay, I, I'm, I'm gonna live in this world and I'm gonna, you know, you know, I'm a person of faith and I, I wanna live, I wanna live a, a, a good way. So I've had these two lives. I've had, I mean, I could name 50 people right now in the past 10 years who have gone out of their way to help me 
and to encourage me. I mean, I'll, I'll give you one example off the top of my head. So I told you about the neuroscience course. So if I teach a course, graduate level course, we do something in the community. We don't do just things in the classroom. So I volunteer at a drug rehab program called Outcry in the Barrio. It's about 15 minutes from the campus. And it's a drug addiction program. It's for men. And so I took the students to Outcry and we studied opioid addiction the second weekend in, in the course. I had students, four of them, four out of 13, who either knew someone who had a problem or was in recovery or had relapsed. And so at the second weekend, I had students who asked if a friend or a family member could come to class. And I thought, what an honor to do that. So when we went to, when we went to Outcry, I mean, I know all those people. Spend part of my Thursday afternoon every week there. And I thought, what an honor. I mean, I, I just, um, I've had a great life and I, I just, optometry has been such, so important to me. Uh, even, even when I didn't even know what it was, <laughs> and I never got to go skiing. I mean, it was really crazy, <laughs> but it's, been really, it's very kind of you to, to, you know, have me on your sandbox story. And I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh, Dr. John Potter, on behalf of all optometrists that have benefited from your support, your work, and your efforts, I thank you. And of course, for allowing me to help tell your many sandbox stories through this forum. I appreciate it genuinely. It's great. Thank you so much. And to the audience, thanks for attending. I hope that you go look up some of Dr. Potter's old works <laughs> on the internet. And until my next sandbox story, be great at all you do.